That's Joshua 16, 20 through 62. You can find this on page 225 in the Pew Bible and, of course, up on the screen as well. Hear the word of God. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah according to their clans. The cities belonging to the tribe of the people of Judah in the extreme south toward the boundary of Edom were Kabzil, Elder, Yagur, Kinah, Dimona, Adada, Kadesh, Hazor, Ithnan, Ziph, Telem, Be'alot, Hazor Hadata, Keriot Hezron, that is Hazor, Amam, Shema, Molada, Hazar Gada, Heshmon, Bet Pelet, Hazar Shual, Bersheva, Biziotia, Baala, Iim, Etzem, El Tolad, Chesil, Horma, Ziklag, Madnama, Sansana, Labaot, Shilhim, Ayan, and Ramon, in all 29 cities with their villages. And in the lowland, Eshtaol, Zorah, Ashna, Tsanoa, Enganim, Tapula, Enam, Yarmut, Adulam, Soko, Atzeka, Asha'arayim, Adetayim, Gedarah, Gedarotayim, 14 cities with their villages. Tsenan, Hadasha, Migdalgad, Dileyan, Mitzpeh, Joktil, Lachish, Bozkat, Eglon, Kabon, Lamam, Chitlish, Gedarot, Betagon, Naama, and Makeda, 16 cities with their villages. Libna, Eter, Ashan, Ipta, Ashna, Neziv, Kela, Achsiv, and Marisha, nine cities with their villages. Ekron, with its town and its villages, from Ekron to the sea, all that were by the side of Ashdod, with their villages. Ashdod, its towns and its villages. Gaza, its towns and its villages. To the brook of Egypt and the great sea with its coastline. And in the hill country, Shamir, Jatir, Sukko, Dana, Kiriatsana, that is Devir, Anav, Eshtemo, Ani, Goshen, Cholen, and Gilo, eleven cities with their villages. Arav, Duma, Eshan, Janim, Beth Tapua, Afecha, Humta, Kiriat Arba, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine cities with their villages. Maon, Carmel, Sif, Juta, Yesriel, Yokteam, Tsanoa, Cain, Gibeah, and Timna, ten cities with their villages. Halhul, Betsur, Gedor, Maraat, Betanot, and Eltekon, six cities with their villages. Kiryat Baal, that is Kiryat Yearim, and Rabah, two cities with their villages. In the wilderness, Beth Arava, Medin, Sekaka, Nibshan, the city of salt, and Engedi, six cities with their villages. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, our second reading this morning 
is uh, Joshua chapter 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwelled with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which stands the test of time. We pray that you would speak to us this morning and strengthen us and encourage us for the road ahead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you like how I divided up the scripture reading this morning? That was, you know, it was beautiful, Barry. And, and, uh, you know, we often skip over those parts of Scripture, uh, and, and you know they're in they're they're in the Bible for a reason. And, and I really am glad that we uh, that we read through that this morning. Last week we talked about how uh, Joshua gave Caleb first choice of all the places in the Promised Land to choose as his own as an inheritance for his children. And we learned that he was given first choice because Caleb wholly followed the Lord. Caleb and Joshua were two of the twelve scouts that were sent into the promised land to spy out the territory. Ten of the scouts come back from their mission and they say, Oh, the land is beautiful, but it's full of giants and walled cities and we look like grasshoppers next to them. We should go back to Egypt. Caleb and Joshua, however, bring a different report. They say, oh, the land is beautiful. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. Let us go up at once and occupy it. Now, it'll be 45 years before the land was fully occupied and Joshua hadn't forgotten Caleb's wholehearted devotion to God. When it came time to make allotments of the land, Caleb gets first pick. And even though he is 85 years old at the time, he chooses a piece of territory that is still occupied by giants. Because he wants to see the people of God in full possession of the land that God has promised them. This week we come to the first allotment to a tribe... And it goes to Judah. This morning we read 40-some verses listing all of the cities that were allotted to Judah. We ignored actually the first 18 verses of this chapter, which lay out the physical boundaries of the territory from the Mediterranean Sea to the Dead Sea, from the Negev Desert to uh, the city of Jerusalem. It was a large territory, about half the size of the state of Israel today. I thought it was important for us to read, or to have Barry read, all of those names of all of those cities to get some sense of the size of the allotment and to be aware just how precise this division of territory was. And then we came to the verse that I read, the final verse of chapter 15, which begins with the word but. It's in marked contrast to everything that's gone before in this chapter. For more than 40 verses, we heard about city after city, village after village that had been successfully occupied by the Israelites. But then in verse 63, we read, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. 
So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now, just to remind ourselves, there are two dramas unfolding simultaneously in the book of Joshua. The one we might think of most often is the drama of God giving a land to his chosen people. But there's a second drama going on at the same time. It's one that's more unpleasant to think about. It's the drama of God punishing the Canaanites. The children of Israel take possession of a land that's already fully occupied. That means the Canaanites were displaced so that the Israelites could find a place. And if that seems unfair to you, I appreciate your sense of fairness and your desire that people be treated equally. But in this case, the blessing of the one people and the curse of the other people are not really related to each other. They're only conjoined because of God's larger global machinery. We've been told several times that God is using Israel as an instrument to punish the wickedness of the Canaanites. But that doesn't mean that Israel itself is righteous just because God is using it in this way. Remember that God will later use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to punish the Israelites, even though God had no particular love for those pagan nations. But God does use them as a scourge to accomplish His purposes. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 9.5. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land. But it's on account of the wickedness of those nations. So what's the point? When we occupy the land that God has set apart for us, we should not get a swelled head. We shouldn't think that we're getting this land because we are morally superior to the people who've been displaced by their own wickedness. Now, it might be a bit of a surprise to us that the tribe of Judah was not able to occupy the city of Jerusalem. After all, what could be more central to the national identity of Israel than the city of Jerusalem? How is it that this city wasn't occupied by this large and powerful tribe. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, makes this observation, and I quote, This passage offers no excuse for the people, nor is it set down with that view. For if they, the tribe of Judah, if they had exerted themselves to the full measure of their strength, and failed of success, the dishonor would have fallen on God himself, who had promised that he would continue with them as their leader until he should give them full and free possession of the land and that he would send hornets to drive out the inhabitants. Therefore, it was owing entirely to their own, to the tribe of Judah's own sluggishness that they did not make themselves master of the city of Jerusalem. This they were not able to do, but their own torpor, their neglect of the divine command from the love of, uh, but their neglect of the divine command from love of ease. These were the real obstacles. Sluggishness, torpor, 
Love of ease. That's what Calvin identifies as the true obstacles to the full possession of the city by the tribe of Judah. Now keep in mind that God wants them to have this city. And to have it completely and to have it entirely to themselves. That's God's plan for them. That's God's desire. But even now, five years after the Jordan was first crossed, Jerusalem remains in this ambiguous position. It actually won't be until the time of King David that the city fully comes under Israelite control. And at that time, David makes it his capital. And David's son Solomon will build the temple there in that city. Now at this time that we're reading about in the book of Joshua, the Ark of the Covenant is in the tabernacle at Shiloh. Sluggishness, torpor, love of ease. Maybe Calvin's being a little harsh. After all, the Israelites have been at war for five years. And now the Jews and the Jebusites are living side by side in the city of Jerusalem. It could be worse, you might say. Maybe Calvin is being a little harsh. Or, maybe Calvin knows exactly what he's talking about. Keep in mind that Calvin was himself on the dangerous front line of a titanic struggle for the heart and the soul of the people of God. And what was at issue in Calvin's day during the Protestant Reformation was the purity of the people of God, the purity of the church, the purity of its teaching, the purity of its doctrine. Over the course of the centuries since the apostles first proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church had become compromised. It had become mixed. Ideas from the pagan world had infiltrated the church and things reached a breaking point when in 1517, Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic priest, a a university professor, called out the church that he loved on the practice of the sale of indulgences. In those days, you could give the Pope enough money and he would give you a document with fancy letters and an official seal declaring that all of your sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. And that you had a guaranteed admission to heaven. Luther thought this practice of selling indulgences somehow was missing the point of what the Bible taught. Now that doesn't mean that the church was 100% wrong. Many of the things that the church was doing and preaching were exactly right. But the church had become compromised. The good was mixed with the bad. And the Protestant Reformation was a struggle to purify the church by returning to its apostolic and biblical roots. And the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, and others, the reformers recognized that the reform of the church isn't something that just happens one time but that the church must be constantly vigilant, constantly checking itself against this standard of apostolic teaching and scripture. In the 17th century, one of the Dutch reformers, Jodicus van Lodenstein, coined a phrase that became a kind of watchword among reformed Christians. He said, the church is reformed and always being reformed by the word of God. 
You might have heard the phrase, the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. One of the strange things that happened in the denomination that we left five years ago is that the last part of that phrase was intentionally dropped so that it became the church reformed and always reforming, period. Which, of course, is an entirely different thing than what Lodenstein said, because without the phrase, according to the word of God, it instead becomes a formula for constant innovation, according to what? The spirit of the age, the winds of culture, something very different from Scripture. The truth is that not just churches, but we individual Christians need regularly to check ourselves against the Word of God. We need regularly to reform ourselves according to the Word of God because all of us live in the world, an increasingly pagan world, because all of us contend with our own flesh and its deceptive desires. And so every once in a while, it makes sense for us to check. To check what we're thinking and what we're believing and what we're saying. To check it against the unchanging Word of God. Many times in the Old Testament, God describes Himself as a jealous God. In Exodus chapter 34, in giving instructions to the Israelites before they actually entered into the promised land, God says to them, Behold... I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it be a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their Asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited that you eat of this sacrifice. The point here is that God wants His people to be uncompromised. He wants their faith and their practice to be pure, not a mixture or a hodgepodge of different beliefs. Now, let me say this. This is not about racial purity. Although through the centuries, and even today, there are racists of various stripes who use these kinds of scriptural passages to support their racial ideology. This is not about racial purity. Israel and the church have always embraced people of all races as long as they swore allegiance to the one true God. What this is about is heart purity. This is about singleness of mind. This is about loving God and the things of God to the exclusion of anything or anyone who might compete with God. This is about the constant fight against idolatry. Calvin says that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We just keep inventing and crafting new alternatives to God, new competitors for our affections and our attentions. But God is a jealous God. We cannot have a relationship with God if we have other gods competing for our attention and affection. 
One of my Facebook friends, a fellow that I went to college with and who now runs a jazz club in uh, Boston, he posted a picture of a shelf that he has uh, at his house, and on the shelf are statues of Jesus and Mary and Ganesh, you know, the, 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 the cute, fat elephant god of the Hindus, and Buddha, and Kali. And then the little quip that he wrote under the photo was, I need all the help I can get. Well, maybe Ganesh and Kali are fine with that kind of arrangement. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That's a hard teaching. That's a teaching about the exclusive demand for affection that Jesus requires. If we're followers of Christ, it's never Jesus plus something else. It's got to be Jesus alone. Because if we're looking for what only God can offer from any other place but God, then we are in fact not in a relationship with God. God cannot be just one pill in our well-stocked medicine cabinets. Because God is a jealous God. And he demands an exclusive relationship. The earthly image we have for this divine relationship is marriage, of course. Marriage is an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. And if we have someone on the side, we're not really married. So all of this raises some questions for us today. Just how compromised are we in our lives as professing Christians? Are we single-minded in our devotion to Christ and His gospel? Or are we like the tribe of Judah in Jerusalem cohabiting with pagan Jebusites? What are our idols and what kind of deals have we struck with them you've heard it said that we christians are in the world but not of the world jesus praying for the church shortly before his crucifixion prayed to his father this way he said my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one they are not of the world even as i am not of the world In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is just an old-fashioned biblical word for money and for all the world has to offer by way of enticements. Mammon is the sum of all the idols this world has to offer. The Apostle James, who was the brother of Jesus warns against what he calls double-mindedness. The double-minded person tries to keep a foot in both worlds. He plays at being a Christian, but he dances to the tune of the world. We can't have it both ways. 
James says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, James writes, Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will free from you, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Now, I've told you before that a preacher is always preaching to himself. Which raises the question for me, in what ways am I double-minded? And in what ways am I allowing Jebusites to continue to reside in this holy city of my life? What are my idols? What kind of spiritual house cleaning, and keep in mind everything in our life is spiritual, what kind of spiritual house cleaning do I need to do? If you've seen my office, you know I have a hard time keeping things neat. The books and the boxes and the papers pile up. All of them are important to me in one way or another. But the sheer volume of them distracts me from what needs to be done. The sheer volume of them actually slows me down. I think many of our lives are that way. God wants all of us. But we're so distracted by other things. And maybe Calvin's right. Maybe it is sluggishness and torpor and love of ease that keeps me from cleaning out the things in my life that distract me from a single-minded devotion to Christ. So how about you? What stands between you and a devoted relationship with Almighty God? What's distracting you from an all-consuming communion with the God of heaven and earth? God offered and intended for the children of Israel to settle and to occupy and to enjoy the land that he had set aside for them. He even promised to send in hornets to drive out anyone who would compete with the exclusive claim to this land. But he also expected those people to be wholeheartedly committed, to be single-minded in their devotion to him as the one true God. God is a jealous God. There can be no other gods beside him. Let me close this morning with one final observation from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching on the need to be exclusively focused on the things of God. But as he's preaching, he senses the anxiety of the crowd. Their anxiety about daily needs. If I'm focused exclusively on God, how am I going to pay my bills? If I'm focused exclusively on God, what's going to become of my family? If I'm focused exclusively on God, won't I be naked and hungry and homeless? And sensing their anxiety, sensing our anxiety, Jesus makes this promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things. Whatever it is that we need in a fleshly, worldly way, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things 
will be added to you. That's a promise that we need to receive and believe this morning so that we might fully occupy the land. Let us pray. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for your challenge. We thank you for the capacity that you give us to do what it is that you've called us to do. Lord, I pray that you would wean us from things that are passing away, things that don't count. I pray that you would whet our appetite for eternal things, for things that will last forever. And I pray, Lord, that as we are busy in the work of the kingdom, that you would provide our daily bread and daily joy. Lord, we desire that we would bring you honor and glory with our whole lives. And we ask that you make this so. In Jesus' name.